We're back, bitches! You're going to see the interview everyone is going to be talking about. Wagon wheel Watusi! What do I think of her? Yes. I don't think of her. Then we become divas as opposed to just strong women. Ah, coughing during my interview, really? It feels, uh, reductive. Hello and welcome to Big Diva Energy, the podcast for and about fabulous people being fucking excellent. I'm Holly Morgan and my husband Tom is also here. You stand convicted of assholism. Divas, I can barely contain myself. Our subject today is... But it literally doesn't get more iconic. Uh, their films left an indelible mark on popular culture and brought drag kicking, screaming and puking into the public eye. Their image was captured by David Hockney and Andy Warhol and they themselves became a permanent touchstone for glamour. Their influence is felt everywhere. There's an entire episode of RuPaul's Drag Race dedicated to them. They served as the inspiration for Ursula and Disney's The Little Mermaid. A 10-foot high statue of them stands on the American Museum of Visionary Art in Baltimore and their most famous film, Pink flamingos is in the permanent collection at the museum of modern art i'm obviously talking about divine we're talking about divine and our guest today well again it simply doesn't get more iconic they are a bona fide solid gold drag empress filmmaker and actor things got off to a good start their senior thesis film jizzmopper a love story not only won the audience award at the annual penn state student film festival but it birthed a legend. Our guest has lit up the world with shows, immersive experience, events and films for the past two decades and pre-pandemic presided over an almost constantly touring court of drag and counterculture royalty. Cutting their glorious fangs on the renowned T-Shack stage, our guest went on to birth Midnight Mass, the legendary San Francisco-based celebration of the greatest cult movies of all time. Our guest is also a motherfucking auteur. Their feature film All About Evil, starring absolute divas Natasha Leone and Mink Stoll is inspired by the gore films of the 60s and 70s, as well as the female exploitation genre. How many other performers got a retrospective on them hosted by the San Francisco de Young Museum? I can't believe I'm actually saying this. Our guest is Peaches Christ. Hey! <laughs> Hi! Hello. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for joining us. We can't thank you enough. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and we're discussing one of my favorite subjects of all time. So it's a pleasure. Oh, bless you. I mean, we must say for the listener, (laughs) Peaches is is a go-to interviewee on this subject. We are so lucky to have you talking about Divine. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And you're also, I think, probably one of the hardest working people in show business. So thank you for giving us your valuable time. I mean, you... (laughs) Well, I have more time these days, I found. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you say that, but you you did a show just before Christmas with Bianca Del Rio as well. Like, how did that go? It was great. You know, I've avoided sort of... uh, looking at my own stage shows on video for sure. years and years yeah. because I just, you know, it's a live experience. I, I hate looking back at, you know, uh, a theatrical performance. However, with COVID and the pandemic, mm-hmm. everything has shifted. My point of view has shifted everything. And so I really enjoy now, you know, these online screenings of these old shows yeah. and then d- doing it live with Bianca and getting to, you know, it's like watching an old family mo- home movie or something. Yeah. Fantastic. And what about All About Evil? How can we see it? Well, that also is being uh, hopefully put on a streaming platform. That negotiation is happening. It was supposed to happen this past year, but it's been delayed. So in 2021, I hope 
we'll all be able to see uh, All About Evil streaming oh. near you. Oh my God, I'm so excited. This is phenomenal. <laughs> and you're working on screenplays and busying yourself. You're, I mean, is this, is this the musical that you're writing at the moment? Not, it isn't. Ah. So it's, it's, it's uh, a number of things because, well, I was performing and touring a lot. Yeah. And uh, a couple years ago, I sort of hit a wall where I was like, I can't do all of these things that I've, you know, uh, put on my list mm -hmm. to do because I'm writing new shows while touring. Like literally I was, you know, I would be in London, you know, performing at the Soho theater and writing a show when I was going home, you know, like, oh because, because I had to fly back to San Francisco and mount a new show that hadn't been written yet. And that sort of, you know, hamster wheel um, was exhausting. And I had set the intention to slow down yeah. and work on other projects. Now I'm not saying I'm responsible for COVID, but <laughs> at least you know, the new variant. <laughs> I, I did, I did put it out in the universe that I needed more time. You know, and I do believe in the secret, you know, and so <laughs> did you manifest COVID? Pages? I don't, I hope not. I hope not. But, uh, but I've definitely gotten more time than I bargained for. Uh, and the good news is, I uh, had all these projects yeah. that were kind of on the back burner. And so I've been writing, uh, I've co-written a, a TV pilot with my friend Varla Jean Merman. Oh. Uh, and I've created a, a docu-series uh, with my friend Michael Varadi. And then Michael Varadi and I are also writing uh, a new horror movie script. Um, and so, you know, we'll see. And then, then another collaborator and I, Shantaine Bowen, uh, who's this fantastic comedian uh, who whose TV show, Astronomy Club, uh, was picked up by Netflix a few years ago, and wow. it is fantastic. And somehow kind of got, you know, missed by a lot of people. So I'm, I'm trying to promote it, like find Astronomy Club on Netflix. We will. Shantaine was part of a, an all-black improv troupe out of New York. Amazing. And their sketch comedy is genius. And so anyway, he, he has gotten that on Netflix and now his new show, Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> is uh, uh, been just picked up by HBO Max. Oh, uh, so, so he contacted me because he wants to do a horror comedy. And so we're co-writing a screenplay together as well. So oh. it's like, uh, you know, just a lot of different projects I'm juggling. And it feels really good. I miss performing yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it's been nice to be able to like, oh my gosh, I can, I can wake up and my, you know, day is filled with actually being able to set aside hours for writing. Yeah. So it's been nice. Oh, that's amazing. That's oh, great. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so Peaches, we're going to ask you the questions that we ask all our guests and I can't okay. wait for your answers. So Peaches, I will always love you. Unrelated. There's a question. Uh, I will always love you. Who is your ride or die diva? Uh, well, I mean, when uh, thinking about this, I have to ask living or oh, anyone all, all, time. Time. all the time, then it's divine. Yeah, it <laughs> you know, that, she is definitely my ride or die diva. Yeah. No one has inspired me more. Oh, God, I can't wait to get into it. Amazing. Okay, well, who run the world? To which diva would you give the nuclear codes? Now, I think she should be considered a diva, and I'm a big, big fan. And I would give the nuclear codes to Greta Thunberg. Oh, uh, yes. You know, Great idea. I feel like <laughs> let's hand that mess over to children yes. who, you know, <laughs> probably know better than we do and will dismantle them and 
you know, set us back on the right course. Absolutely. A practical yeah. answer. I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor uh, yes. of that. <laughs> she would take it, thank you, because she's polite, and then she would throw it out the window. Yes. Or into the yeah, she, she, she'd figure out how to yeah, t- turn all that nuclear energy into saving the uh, climate, you know. <laughs> Reverse nuclear fission. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. I believe, yeah. She, I believe she can do that. If I could turn back time, if you could send one diva back into what historical situation, what would it be? This is really, really tough because <laughs> it's sort of like, I mean, you know, you'd like to think that some one of our fantastic divas could change the course of history. Uh, and so maybe, maybe, you know, I'm going for the, the biggest picture I can, but I, I can't uh, separate the last four years of our lives. Yeah. Um, from what happened in 2016 mm-hmm. for the entire world. Yeah. So I adore Oprah Winfrey. Yes. I have always been a huge Oprah fan, unapologetically. <laughs> and I feel like when, you know, Ronald Reagan ran as president, it was the first time the the right had smartly used a celebrity, an actor, to mm-hmm. run for political office. Mm-hmm. And the damage he did was so, so awful. And uh, alongside your... Uh, Margaret Thatcher, yeah. you know, the, yeah. they were best buds. Um, and it sort of paved the way for this sort of celebrity culture. Um, so I'm not saying that I think celebrities should run for political office. However, beat them at their own game and mm. have Oprah run against Donald Trump, we would have had a different president and a much different America. You yes. Know? What couldn't be more correct. <laughs> if she had run, she would have definitely won. She would have definitely she would have won. won. She would have easily yeah. because if you think, if you, even yeah. if you just take people that are only interested in like celebrity and mm. reality stars, yeah. but there's clearly more people in the country. Or Oprah's one of those people that crosses both lines. Yeah, like there's people from different political factions that all love Oprah, whereas there's only really she one truly, side that likes Donald. She, <laughs> well, I was thinking about it. She's the opposite of him, right? Yeah. He's a divider and she's a unifier. Absolutely. So, you know, it, and she built a career on unifying. So, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about that question. I'm like, I think, yeah, Oprah, you know, she says that she won't run as president, which yeah. is, you know, she a, a smart thing to do. But I, I'm like, but they're running, you know, the fucking apprentice <laughs> asshole. So, you know. <laughs> The worst person ever, you know. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. I think that's a great answer. Oh, I wish <laughs> we had the technology. Um, right. <laughs> material girl, what's on your rider? Yeah. Oh, I have very simple requests. <laughs> Honestly, I don't uh, often, um, I don't actually have a rider, oh. you know. So so I, I typically just ask for things, probably because I'm a performer and a producer. Yeah. Uh, I, I tend to... Um, see both sides, right? So I usually wait to see if a producer asks if I need anything. Uh-huh. And it's always duly noted. Um, and I, I like to see if they actually deliver on the the, the few things I ask. Yeah. But usually it, it's seltzer water, a straw, uh, and, you know, some sort of uh, bite-sized healthier snacks. Ah. You know, yeah. carrots or something like that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. That's it. Very humble. That is humble. Hardest working, most humble. <laughs> the reality of it is when you're performing and you're you're you've got a job to do, it's like I don't I don't enjoy eating when I'm in a corset, you know, and I'm I'm uh, sober, so I don't drink alcohol. It's like I you know, but I've dealt with people who have um, enormous riders, and they typically are people who are newer in their careers yeah. who have a, a 
uh, a smaller window of of success or mm-hmm. fame. Mm-hmm. And the people that I've well worked with that are truly legends and truly divas who've had longer careers typically have very minimal requests, you know. Amazing. Mm. Sheer class. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tom's a bit like that, actually. We're not really moving house. I've just had to move all the stuff in the background to accommodate his rider, which will be arriving soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's, my life is a living hell. Yeah. Right. <laughs> We've got a tractor on the way. Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> now, you know, I'm, I'm being nosy here, but who, who, is, who is the great diva who is, who is, like, understated and calm in her request? Is it Elvira? For sure, Elvira, <laughs> uh, John Waters, oh. um, you know, uh, Pam Greer, uh <gasps> Cloris Leachman, like oh mo- p- these people who've like won Academy Awards and done big things and had huge careers, you know, usually it's very simple things, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, and I'm lucky. I really haven't dealt with, I've, I've been very fortunate in this career where I've been able to work with people I'm a fan of. That's kind yeah. of the, the sort of, you know, I built this sort of career out of being a fan of things, cult movies, and then getting to work with people that I, love yeah um and i'm really lucky because the adage about don't meet your heroes hasn't really been true for me yeah so um you know i've been i've been really lucky i've been very rarely disappointed um and then the people that i have been disappointed by aren't the people i've been the most passionate about Mm -hmm. you know um and i would say the people that tend to be the most what's the word high maintenance uh are the people that sadly are the most insecure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, it doesn't take long to get to work with uh, famous people, you know, before you figure out these patterns. Yeah. And it's interesting because you can see it, you know, through the most famous people in the world sometimes where you're like, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. she's, she's just insecure. Like this person that you wouldn't expect to be wildly insecure. I, I, I won't name names, no. but you know, rhymes with, Fardana. <laughs> Ladonna. I don't know. Anyway, she she to me is like one of the people in the world where you're like, you have no reason to be insecure. Yeah. Insecure. You're the queen of pop. You paved the way, but you watch this bizarre behavior and you're yeah. like, oh, it's all it's all insecurity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That explains my rider though, doesn't it? Well, it explains what you've got. <laughs> Insecurity. Yes. Right. I'll be the first to admit it. it doesn't there stop me go. ordering it, though. <laughs> and the fact you've got LaDonna on your shirt. <laughs> Don't know. Give it away. <laughs> that was a code. <laughs> They'll be able to crack the code. Hey, I, I, I am. I love your shirt, by the way. <laughs> okay. And I am. A massive, massive fan of hers. So, yeah. Don't get me wrong. No, don't worry. In fact, I want to grab her and be like, "We love you. <laughs> Come relax. on, relax. Yes. You know, just, just relax. Yeah. You know, you've done it. You can just enjoy." Yeah. Uh, and we went to the Madame X show. Uh, what was it last year? A year, two years ago, whenever yeah. that was. Yeah. It came to LA, and, and I remember thinking, like, "Oh, I'm so excited." And it was great, and it was fun, but so much of it, you know, was like. It, you could feel the energy of like, I, I need to impress you. You need to know that I'm smart. You need to know that I'm savvy. You need to know yeah. that I'm funny, you yeah. know? And it just all gets in her way. We yeah. know you are. That's why we That's love why we're you. Obsessed exactly. With you. It's yeah, like, did you exactly. see the Eurovision performance that she did? 
Uh, yes, which, uh, my my partner is very obsessed. With uh, her, good. So that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just the same yeah. thing, wasn't it? It just yeah. felt like it was kind of like, oh no, why are you doing well, this? We say this a lot. She makes yeah. it hard to be a fan sometimes because you are, yes, so much of the time you're, you're. I'm sure your partner is very familiar with this kind of like. Oh, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Ladonna fan, and then people, <laughs> people give you the look. They're like, "Oh, really?" You're like, "Yes, really," because yes. she's still an yeah. amazing musician. But and I know she can be a complete cunt. But like, you just, <laughs> yeah, just go with us. <laughs> that's why Holly wrote an yeah. entire hour-long show about yes, how great she is. <laughs> performed at the end. I, of the I mean, uh, that's an, yeah, it's a whole other show, and yeah. it's so super complicated. And I think that's why it's like I will always, always support her. And when mm. any young queer, especially, mm. comes for her, I will be the first in line to sort of sit them down and and have done this, where I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah, this is this is what I grew up with. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, you know, this was you know I loved Madonna. I mean, sorry, Divine <laughs> and Frankenfurter, and the, because they were they were transgressive, they were in your face, they mm. were cool, radical queers. They were not family friendly. Madonna was the only pop celebrity mm -hmm. at her stature. Mm -hmm. I mean, by miles to put femme gay men of color yeah. center stage, you know, at the height of her career mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of AIDS, you know, like, so give me a break yeah. when you guys beat up on Madonna because yeah. this woman is why you can be so obnoxious. You know, <laughs> she paved the way <laughs> for you to be, you know, <laughs> what you are she so. walked so we can yeah. run <laughs> right, exactly yeah she yeah, screamed yeah. so we can also scream but like yeah. yeah you're right you're so right that's spot on oh god i love you so much <laughs> <laughs> so peaches what does being a diva what is a diva what does diva mean to you well, I mean, in the classic sense, of course, um, it, it's the 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 opera singer who can, you know, do what nobody can, right, and take mm -hmm. center stage and yeah. own everything. And of course, uh, as as we use it today, um, I think that that's I reject the idea that it's it's a bitch because mm -hmm. you know I think again sort of misogyny comes into play where a word like diva which was a good a good thing it was a fabulous thing uh -huh. you know often because people are sexist now refer to it is someone who's a bitch mm -hmm. I, I think a diva is a strong powerful talented uh female presence so mm. that can be you know uh, a man or a woman mm -hmm. you know um and i think uh it's about being fabulous and in control and powerful so, you know, I, I don't I, I think, you know, uh, someone who's an asshole isn't necessarily a diva. Mm -hmm. They can be, you know, you can be. But a, a diva does not equate being an asshole. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. What we think but they well. can also be an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> exactly. There are people, yes, who can be both. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you're so right. It's about like hijacking coded language back from the people who are trying to subjugate or undermine with with words and and owning that and finding power in it and yeah. uh yeah right. that's what we're trying yeah, it's to like, do yeah exactly and um, you can unpick that simply so we had a previous guest who came on and they just said a diva is someone who delivers which i just always thought was such a ah. and it's like it doesn't it doesn't do everything that you need the word to do i don't think yeah. it doesn't capture everything that we mean when we say diva but it's certainly yeah. like I'm just going to correct you. I think it was Patty Lapone who said it was a diva who delivers who we have. Oh, it was someone talking about <laughs> Patty Lapone. 
I mean, we, we could we Just to be clear, Patty Lapone has not been on the podcast. She's well yet. Okay. Let's manifest Lapone. We can get Lapone. If you've got COVID to happen, so, we can get Lapone. If, you know, in that theory, I love the idea that someone brings me a pizza and I, I get to say thanks, Diva. <laughs> yes. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that in mind. Yes. Have you ever been a Diva, Peaches? Uh, I think that I get to be diva-esque because uh, I don't, I, I think of Peaches Christ as this sort of uh, persona that, that's, that's inside of me and is an exaggeration of who I am. And, but also sort of a fantasy creature. Peaches isn't real in many ways. I mean, yes, I'm sitting here as Peaches and I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. um, But much like Elvira or Pee Wee Herman is both something that exists in the world and you can see out in public and, you know, it it, it transcends one movie or one TV show. I think of Peaches that way, but I also think much like Elvira and Pee Wee Herman, we know that that person's not real, Mm -hmm. that this is a creation. And so I think the idea of being a diva is something I get to perform, yes, but not actually be, if that makes sense. Mm, I love that. Best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, when people, you know, talk about uh, drag, I like to think of, you know, drag is this huge word that encompasses all these different things. And I went this route where, you know, it's about character creation for me and my drag idols like Divine and Elvira were these people who created these characters um, that they didn't have to be all the time because you knew there was still Glenn and you knew there was still Cassandra Mm -hmm. or Paul Rubens or Robert England, Mm -hmm. but they could put on, you know, you know, this, this costume. And for me, that's always been the way I've approached Peaches. I love that. So she, she gets Peaches is a diva, (laughs) but you know, but you know, like I said, it's Peaches is also, uh, and again, this is very, very divine in a way, um, mocking the idea of being a diva, you know, mocking, you know, the whole concept of celebrity and people worshiping her, you know, yeah, and, and, and that's, yeah, that's the sort of postmodern spirit of drag, I guess, isn't it? Of being able to comment on something from within it, which is amazing. And It is, except that drag is now so popular that it's been interesting to see it become uh, its own, it's less ironic than it used to be. Yeah. Because it's actually become a successful uh, form of, entertainment with with big money attached and big deals and so to me because i've been doing it for so long (laughs) the irony of performing as a celebrity was that we would not become real celebrities yeah and you know that was part of the fuck you to the whole you know industry Mm. now you know i have friends like bianca del rio uh who have two million followers on instagram arguably is more of a celebrity than a lot of so-called celebrities. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing because now it's like, no, Bianca, actually you're not making fun of celebrities. You are one. Yeah. Two feature movies, you know, like a West End run, things like that. Yeah. It's the kind of stuff that a lot of people who who want to, or always came up through celebrity want, that's what they want to achieve. They want to get to that point. And yeah, she's done it. But yeah, and, you- and no one's going to separate Roy from Bianca, yeah. right? Like if Bianca makes a misstep, she and Roy will get canceled. That's so true. I think it's this weird thing where 
yeah, it's it's really shifting from yeah. what it used to be, you know. But then presumably drag's then going to have to find ways to start to parody itself and to start to to sort of turn in on yeah. itself because that is what it's, you know, how, one of its functions as a form. So it's going to have to find a way to navigate that, surely. And I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty I'm looking forward to seeing be made fun of. Yes. <laughs> drag will eat itself. And, and I'm, yeah, it's like roast me, but roast them. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to it yeah yeah amazing that's something i really wanted to talk to you about actually it's like because if divine and john waters like made drag cool and like mm -hmm. how, how do you kind of yeah it's going to be so interesting to see drag eat itself and and uh and, and find out how to claw it back from the mainstream and yeah on. i mean it's been you know like i said i think and john talks about this a lot yeah uh you know drag when they were starting out was very square, you yeah. know, and it was it was uh, about female illusion and going to the balls and looking like women and impersonating icons. And uh, Divine and the creation of Divine was, in a sense, a middle finger to that, you know, that that sort of uh, sense of gay culture wanting to emulate um, straight ideals or yeah. heteronormativity. But more than that, I think that, you know, Andy Warhol and John Waters um, and Richard O'Brien, I think they just wanted to do their own thing. And the general <laughs> public, you know, they they all of it was disgusting to the general public, you know. <laughs> so it's it's not like the the the, the drag balls, you know, uh, of beautiful queens, you know, was was being applauded by yeah. mainstream society. They were all transgressive. It's just that the 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 ironic thing is, and we experienced this a lot too in the mid '90s was that gay people often hated us more, you know, mm. because, um, you know, there was a point where I was asked not to attend certain gay events. You know, I, my, my films were constantly being rejected from gay film festivals, but were played at genre film festivals. Because, you know, when we were fighting for the right to get married, there was this sense that a drag queen who loves horror and is named after Jesus was not doing anyone any favors, you mm. know. So I was sort of, and my friends, we were considered shameful and <sighs> disgusting. And, you know, and sweater gays, the A gays and the political gays found us and trans people and, you know, everyone that was fringe mm. um, as working against the grain um, nice. of the movement. Mm. So drag now being sort of, to me, the pumpkin latte of, of gay <laughs> culture, you know, where we're the most basic of gay people now have a favorite drag queen um, <laughs> is, you know, it's it's I'm probably going to end up sounding like some punk rock old bitter queen who's like, in my day, you know, we were considered repulsive and I loved it, you know. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, who knows? I'm, I'm very well aware that my resistance to it becoming this popular um, is is bizarre because, you know, I'm, I'm part of the reason it became popular, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I was part of a group of people. They call us legends. Um, but, you know, it was people like us who continued to do drag and create these spaces that mm -hmm. over time the underground became more and more popular yeah my shows when i started were 30 40 people you know i do shows now at the castro theater for 1400 people one in one show and we do two shows a day 
I the the, the irony of that isn't lost on me, mm-hmm. you know. Good, yeah. Um so when I complain about the popularity of drag race, I also like any good gentrifier have to yeah. uh you know re- re- realize that I'm a hypocrite, you know, because I, I helped make it happen. We were just too cool. We couldn't contain ourselves. We <laughs> can bear it. <laughs> really? I can't help it if I'm so cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you for your hard work. Thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> Please, I, I, I thank, again, Divine. Yes. You know, I feel like, if you really trace it back to the very beginning, and I love looking at this, I think you can look at the what the Warhol superstars were doing in New York, mm-hmm. what the Dreamlanders were doing in Baltimore, and what the Coquettes were doing in San Francisco. And you can say before those groups at that time, this did not exist. Yeah. You yeah. know, this idea of transgressive, uh, and in London as well, and, and very much Richard O'Brien yeah. and his, mm-hmm. that, that crew, you know. Um, it's, uh, an interesting thing to trace it back to there and realize now, of course, you know, we can look at things that happened before they did, but this specific style of a very punk rock form of drag, it it was, was all born, you know, at that time with Mm -hmm. those groups. So I'm just part of a lineage that really owes my, you know, my, my gratitude is is for those folks for sure. Oh, amazing! The Beatles owed Elvis. So, yeah, you know exactly. And Elvis owed black people. Yeah. <laughs> and El- Elvis owed Little Richard. Let's yeah. face it. You know, it's like you know, without Little Richard, you know, again, another big queen yeah. started everything. You know, uh, rock and roll would not exist Absolutely. for white people the way it did. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Well, we're going to have a t- little break, and then when we get back. We're going to get right into the life of the legendary Divine. And we're back. Fantastic. So, Divine was born Harris Glenn Milstead on October 19th, 1945 in Baltimore, Maryland. His mother, Frances, is interviewed quite extensively in Jeffrey Schwartz's excellent documentary, I Am Divine. Um, have you, does that ring a bell at all, Peaches, that little documentary? Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> There's a yes, very I, handsome I, man in it. Oh, thank you. My gosh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was, uh, it was really a great experience. And um, Jeffrey Schwartz, who made that movie, uh, I think made all of us nervous because it was like, wait, you're going to do a documentary on, you know, like the coolest person that ever lived. You better, yeah. no pressure, but you better do it right. And I think he did a great job. He yeah. really did. It's yeah. a wonderful piece. Yeah. So in it, Frances recalls taking her child to a paediatrician who informed her that her son was more female than male on the basis of observing young Divine, then Glenn, playing. Uh, it's quite a strange moment in the documentary. Mm. It's sort of a bit discordant maybe with our current discourse, but it's nonetheless, uh, I'd say, an interesting insight into how Frances and women like her were navigating raising queer children. I don't know if you'd agree with that, especially as it couldn't have been easy in 1945, which is... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a different yeah. world, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sadly, I think that it it was so normal. In fact, I, I actually think that she that that whole storyline mm. of Divine's relationship uh, with his mother is just it's painful. You yeah. Know? 
and and really actually maybe the heart of that whole documentary. Yeah, she's she's a really compelling interviewee, isn't she? And like yeah, yeah you really do feel her regret, I think, for the lost years, don't you? But Yep, absolutely. The postcard years. Yeah, yeah the postcard years, yeah. Oh, devastating. Um, but potentially this is an opportunity to talk about uh, pronouns with Divine. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, Waters obviously followed a simple structure. I call Divine her when he's in a movie dressed as a woman. And I call him him in real life because Divine was never a her. And um, this seems to have been something that came up constantly in interviews at the time. And how reductive that they were constantly trying trapping him into, into saying that he was not a man. And like... Yeah, Peaches, as a performer and a producer working across multiple disciplines in drag, are these conversations with the press, are they becoming less reductive when it comes to gender performance? Uh, Absolutely. And in fact, so much so that uh, I'm always impressed now when the journalists, I mean, I was part, I've been, I have some interviews where I've been described as a transvestite, you know what I mean? Like where, you know, in my lifetime, you know, um, and where the misgendering of Mm -hmm. peaches is where, you know, it's intentional. And even when all about evil came out because I was a director, writer and director, Joshua Grinnell, but I appeared in the movie as peaches. There were some horror reviewers who you could tell were sort of um, intentionally misgendering that, you know, the, the different, uh, roles that right. I I played, and I think with Divine you really see it. And today I I find it um, that would be considered really out of vogue, you yeah. know, for the press to do that, even if they still harbor resentments or you know um, are, are shitty people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news is is that the industry has like steamrolled over that, yeah. and you wouldn't really be able to get away with it. No. That being said, although uh, my friend Justin Vivian Bond was, you know, misgendered by the New York Times just a few years ago, you know, in, intentionally. Yeah. You know, the writer and uh, Justin didn't get along and and Justin took the New York Times to task for that, which at 20 years ago, you couldn't. No. So it, there you go. It, it's different now because at least you can hold people accountable. That's yeah. the progression, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so Young Divine uh, went by his middle name, Glenn, so as to distinguish himself from his father, also called Harris. Uh, the Milsteads were socially conservative, relatively financially well-off, sort of fairly devout Baptists. Uh, Divine recalled, I was an only child in, I guess, your upper-middle-class American family. I was probably your American spoiled brat. Speaking in Schwartz's documentary, Francis, Divine's mother, also remembers, when he got to high school, I took him to a diet doctor. The doctor gave him pills. But as soon as we come out of the doctor's office, he said, come on, mum, let's go and get a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so high school, uh, as so often is the case, uh, was a bit of a nightmare. Uh, the family moved to the Baltimore suburb of Lutherville when Divine was 12 and he attended Towson High School. Am I saying that right? Towson, Towson? Yes, you are. That's ah, correct. Thank you. So growing up it's queer... Towson. Towson. Growing up mm-hmm. queer and overweight in the suburbs of Baltimore in the 50s must have been, yeah, kind of in a picnic. And Peaches, you, uh, you know a lot about Divine, obviously. Have you got any sense of what his childhood was like in this period before he met John Waters? Uh, I, well, growing up in the suburbs of Baltimore myself yes. and being queer, <laughs> uh, I can, I can only guess. guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only guess that it was sucked. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I think, you know, even though Maryland is a very blue state, yeah. uh, you know, uh, it's not, what's the word? It's not necessarily progressive. It's blue politically, but it socially, you know, it's still very uh, 
rural and working class and right. its mindset, especially mm -hmm. Baltimore, especially the suburbs of Baltimore. Um, and I think Divine uh, probably was teased and bullied and tortured mm. and it probably was really awful, which is why when you look at what they were doing, you know, I know you're gonna, we're going to get there, but what they were doing when they were so young yeah. in the late 60s with yeah. these movies, it is truly extraordinary, yeah. you know. Yeah, really extraordinary, exactly. Yeah. There's even accounts of, I think, Divine being taken to and from school in a police car. Um, right, exactly. He retreated from the loneliness and hostility of school and spent more time with his parents, uh, working part-time at their daycare business. And Divine did find a confidant and ally in Diane, his high school girlfriend. And she's, in, she's interviewed in Schwartz's do uh, documentary. And I think that they do a really nice job of not treating her like a curio. Like she's, she's, she right. gets a very sympathetic interviewee. Um, mm -hmm. She comes across Absolutely. really well, doesn't she? I agree. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's sweet, yes. their, their relationship. Yeah. Exactly. It's not like the documentary doesn't poke fun at it. Like, how could you not know you were Divine's girlfriend? It's much more warm and like, yeah, she has lovely memories of him, which is yeah. beautiful to hear as well. Mm. Everyone go and watch the documentary. <laughs> yes. This isn't a trailer, but yeah. do, do go and watch it. Yeah. Right. So young Divine started at the Marinella Beauty School in 1963, where he learned how to dress hair and Diane allowed him to effectively curate her look. Lucky bitch. So uh, John Waters, who obviously we're going to be speaking about in a lot more detail, contributes this to the doc. Uh, before he was Divine, he was a normal drag queen for about five minutes. He dressed as Elizabeth Taylor, idolised Elizabeth Taylor, and went out on dates with his girlfriend named Diane dressed as Elizabeth Taylor which is really odd when she lived with her parents Diane your date's here and it's Glenn Milstead dressed as Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> right I mean what do you think about that about picking Liz Taylor as the icon to base the look off I think it's amazing I mean <laughs> I just I I love that. Oh, I mean who doesn't love Liz Taylor, especially yeah. when you watch the movies that they were all such fans of. Yeah. So, Richard Burton. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah, Richard yeah. Burton. Not oh, singing. that's true. Right. Oh, twice. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, but what an iconic beauty as well. So, yeah. uh, John Waters said that apparently at the end of her life, she looked quite a bit like Divine. So. <laughs> full circle. Yes. Yeah, full circle. Exactly. <laughs> Bless. <laughs> but you first got into drag pictures, is that right? Um, Sorry, when you first got in drag, you wrote a part for a performer who'd been unreliable. Is that right? Because um, you're putting the drag, you talk about putting your uh, drag persona together uh, in Jizmopper, but did you have like a specific icon or someone in mind when you first started formulating your, your persona? Yeah, I mean, it was divine. It was for sure. I mean, being uh, a kid who grew up in Maryland and discovering Divine through the film uh, Hairspray uh, when it came out, because it was a big deal when it came out in Maryland. You know, mm. it was it was it was um, such a revelation to me that anyone would even make a movie in Maryland, that yeah. anything remotely show business could even happen here. Then the fact that it's like queer people making mo a movie and it's about racial integration. Now, I didn't, I was too young to recognize the queerness of it. I mm. just knew that I loved it. I knew I loved the kitsch of it. I understood it, you know? Yeah. Um, and then to discover that this loving mother of, you know, Ricky Lakes is played by a man named Divine. I mean, boom, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. like my whole life changed, you know, in that yeah. moment. And uh, from then on, because uh, VHS rentals were, um, 
my life, you know, I was able to go to the video store and see uh, Pink Flamingos and then really get a new lesson on life and and how to live in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it just it set me on a course. So when I was in film school, you know, and that that obsession, I call it the John Waters immersion period, <laughs> where that that sort of obsession with everything up to hairspray, you know, and and then of course, you know, Crybaby came out, but really the obsession was with everything, you know, from uh, Mondo Trasho to, uh, well, let's see, I guess it would be polyester, mm -hmm. you know, and of course hairspray, that, that it was not just, um, a light obsession. It was it was memorizing every line of dialogue. <laughs> you know, it was imitating you know all the characters and all the lines. And when I think back on it now, I'm like, wow! Like I had a sort of a, 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 a keen awareness of queerness and queer comedy at a pretty young age. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, getting to college and worshiping John Waters when most of my peers. Uh, were white straight guys who wanted to be Martin Scorsese. <laughs> um, you know, it was uh, definitely Divine who inspired the creation of Peaches. I mean, almost embarrassingly so. <laughs> but I knew that I could never, you know, I knew I could never be Divine, you know. And I've never attempted to be Divine. No. And nor do I, nor do I think anyone should. No. Yeah. So Peaches was always built my mindset was always that this creation of this character was about being a fan mm. of hers that. and other people's. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah. I love that came through VHS as well. I just wonder if these days people don't have, I, I think one of maybe since DVDs, but also with streaming and stuff, there's that, I have such vivid memories in my mm. mind, the same as you as of, of having VHSs and being able to rewind them and just get those perfect moments and to watch them over and over again in that sense. And I remember I had a really, I have a really vivid memory of the video shop because I grew up in a very small rural uh, village and uh, town village uh, in Southwest. Uh -huh. And there was just this one video shop that was run by this old guy. And there were just, it was like floor to wall uh, videos everywhere. And then they had the children's section around the side. So I would always have to go and like wander around into the children's section. But I remember like really vivid images in my head of like the baseball from Major League being on the front. Oh, yeah. I remember one of the guys uh -huh. that was watching Barb Wire, the, uh, the Pamela Anderson <laughs> movie. Oh. Amazing, the yeah. Time. And it's just all these things have really stuck with me. These images, yeah. And like, yeah, just to kind of. And I definitely remember. I'm pretty sure there was a crybaby as well because that, that mm. iconic image from the front cover of Crybaby. Yeah. It's like those things stick with you, which I don't think we necessarily have in the same way. And maybe that's why there's a certain generation of like people and the way that they've come into culture and that, that sort of like almost obsessiveness yeah. and, the, and the tactileness of a VHS. That's. I wonder if that's something to do with it. And well, you had to work for it, right? Yes, like you had yeah. to, you you couldn't just sort of type it in and become bored with it. You know, yeah. it was this this process where you had to uh, investigate it and work for it. And so the, you, you're right, the cover art for, for the videos would become things that we would obsess over. And, you know, oftentimes because of, of video stores without there being Rotten Tomatoes and without there being, you know, um, reviews or industry magazines, as kids, you know, the, the the cover art was actually more important than the quality of the movie yeah. you know, because it's what hooked us. And then we'd come home, watch five of them and, and figure out which one was good and worthy <laughs> of repeat viewings, you know. Yeah. And what a, it was a strange, it was a different, a totally different time. So when you found those nuggets, those gems that you loved, it really meant something 
because you had to do something in order to discover them. Yeah, exactly. I, I wonder if like the, the next generation have lost that kind of acquisitiveness that, of that kind of, I have to ke- collect these things and I have to hold them in my hands. Otherwise, they're not real. Like if you've just kind of got a load of tabs open on a screen, it's not going to have quite the same sort of magpie quality, does Perhaps it? That's but... why John Waters is making it impossible to get hold of any of his films on streaming <laughs> yeah. services. They're, they're quite hard <laughs> oh, to get yeah. hold of. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've actually never spoken with him about that. That's a good question. Maybe it's intentional, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he's so it's so amazing because he's he's been able to kind of come so full circle that his films now that were completely considered and called trash, you know, yeah. uh, like Multiple Maniacs gets a Criterion release, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's this amazing thing where maybe he gets to just sit back and enjoy being this sort of, you know, really well-respected auteur now yeah. with these gyms, you know, get the, they get the highest form of treatment. Yeah. So what do you think about this, this amazing serendipity? Like John Waters gets kicked out of film school and ends up living down on the same street as Divine. I mean, that, I don't, I don't know if I believe in fate, but that is fateful, right? <laughs> it, it must be because it, it is, it, it is the kind of uh, collaborative magic that you know it feels like lightning in a bottle yeah yeah, yeah. the stuff that movies are made of well it was like the wizard yeah. was popping into technicolor mode yeah. for divine uh, when she, right uh, when he met uh, john waters and they begin to assemble a sort of a chosen family around them in the underground scene in baltimore and they hung out at a beatnik bar called martix in Is downtown baltimore still there not that i'm aware of uh, no but it, but i could be wrong was it there when you were growing up not that i'm aware of no, no. Oh, well, <laughs> I bet it was horrible. <laughs> it yeah. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love the kind of the descriptions about them in this period where Divine's throwing these ridiculous parties and billing it all to her parents without them knowing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> charging all out. Yeah, it's amazing. So funny. That credit just went through the floor. <laughs> right. So bad. So John Waters liked to give his friends nicknames, and it was he who coined the name Divine. Uh, Waters at one time attributed the name to a character from a Jean Genet novel and frequently referred to Divine as the most beautiful woman in the world, almost. So speaking of the name, Divine said in 1973, Divine, that's my name. It's the name John Waters gave me. I like it. That's what everybody calls me now, even my close friends. Not many of them call me Glenn at all anymore, which I don't mind. They can call me whatever they want. They call me Fatso, they call me Asshole, and I don't care. You always change your name when you're in the show business. Divine has stuck as my name. Did you ever look it up in the dictionary? I won't even go into it. It's unbelievable. So what's in a name, Peaches? <laughs> in terms of uh, Peaches, where did, is there a, a, a sort of an origin story? Uh, well, yeah, I was uh, not so surprisingly a kid who went to Catholic school my whole life and was raised <laughs> in the Catholic church. Uh, luckily, you know, um, I was not um, sort of, raised by parents who are obsessed with the Catholic church, but I did go to Catholic school and um, I was pissed when I sort of, you know, came out and realized how fucked up the church was. Mm. Uh, So there was this sort of part of me that um, wanted to take a name that was uh, going to last a long time because drag queens were doing parody names of, of, of celebrities. So you know, at the time there was Torney Anus and, you know, people, people I admired, you know, like, uh, but, you know, suppository spelling and, you know, people like that. Um, so I, I, I felt like, well, if I'm going to take like the name of a celebrity, let's, let's make it like the celebrity, you know, <laughs> um, and, and also let's, let's piss off, you know, um, 
the Catholics, you know. So in, in many ways, it was uh, a punk rock kind of move. But never did I think that at 40 something years old, <laughs> I would still be talking about this or performing <laughs> as this, you know. I think I thought it would go away and, you know, that it was going to be this little hobby. You know, back then, no one set out to do drag as a career. Course, it wasn't yeah. really an option. Yeah. yeah. Have you got a sense from talking to John Waters that that was what they thought as well when they were starting out, that this was just, this was temporary? Or was this always like a, there was a grand ambition behind it? So, you know, with talking to John, I think my sense is that John did think that he could become, rightly so, you know, um, and Andy Warhol, mm -hmm. you know, it, yeah. you know, like there was that drive to that. There was that belief in what he was doing. However, becoming very close friends with Mink Stoll, mm. uh, I know that for the Dreamlanders, they all believed in John. They believed that John believed in John, but they didn't necessarily themselves believe right. that all these years later they would become icons or, you know, so, so I would say that, you know, with John, there was definitely a belief in the, the this vision he had um but that with david and maybe divine and certainly with mink because she has told me um they didn't imagine that these movies would live on all these years <laughs> later you know they were making fun little crazy mm -hmm. movies for their friends to do drugs and watch at midnight you know? <laughs> isn't that amazing just I mean for the listeners as well so mink yeah. is uh, one of the group of the dreamlanders uh, which also included um david lockery uh, bob skidmore mark isherwood and later edith massey and then of course there's mink how, how did you come to know yeah. Mink? when midnight mass my midnight movie series was uh starting to become more successful in san francisco at first it was just a, a really a chance for me to uh do the same thing like party with my friends yeah. uh open it up to like-minded freaks it was not midnight mass wasn't designed to become this sort of successful business uh that it ended up becoming over time uh so we were just doing these shows where we would play our favorite movies at a cinema and do a drag show and it was just like how cool is this how fun is this you know and then over the years the you know uh, first few years, we started selling out shows and people became more and more interested. And, you know, yeah, and there was there was more responsibility. And so at one point I thought, what if we what if we invited you know someone famous? What if we invited one of the stars from one of these movies? We should try that. And I sent a letter to Mink's uh, manager at the time and Mink got the letter and she was living in L.A. at the time. And she agreed to come up to San Francisco and I could not believe it. <laughs> And I don't remember what we paid her, but we paid her probably every bit of money we could scrape together, you know, to 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 make it happen and flew her up. And um, and we did the show and she and I hit it off. And then I just continued to ask her, do you, do you want to do another show? And do you want to do do you want to go on on the road? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And then over the you know the years that we were performing together, of course, we became closer and closer and closer. And, you know, now I consider her like a member of my family, you know, she's oh. just a very, very close, close dear friend. But uh, I will always still be a fan first, you know, there's this <laughs> yeah. part of me that's just sort of, it's surreal, you know, yeah. and it was Mink who really opened the door to me becoming, to having a friendship with John, because I think if it weren't for my close relationship with Mink, there wouldn't have been the trust from John to come and do, you know, Midnight Mass. Um, mm. You know, John and, his man, his uh, assistant at the time, Susan, who I adore, 
uh, she's retired now, but I remember Susan saying, to, pulling me aside once and saying, you do realize that John doesn't appear with drag queens. Like he's never done this. This is something he does not do. You know, the fact that he has now done your show and does things with you, you should be very proud of that. And I, it hadn't occurred to me, but when Susan, you know, the woman that knows him inside and out was like, this is a big deal. You know, like John likes you, John trusts you, you know? Um, and I know that the reason that happened is because of Mink, mm -hmm. you know, my relationship with Mink and, you know, being invited into their family at all. I think part of it has to do with being a fellow Mar Marylander yeah. growing up in Maryland and mm -hmm. having family in Maryland. And we both were raised Catholic and we're both mama's boys. And, uh, you know, we've liked a lot of the same things, but I think I was that sort of lucky fan who was allowed entrance into their dreamland, you know, and it, it's been surreal, but I'll never stop being a fan. But, you know, they're like, you know, I spoke with John, uh, you know, a week and a half ago, and it's like having a, a conversation, a personal conversation with your friend about what COVID yeah. has been like. And, yeah. you know, traditionally, Mink and I and my partner, Nihat, uh, meet up every year uh, and go to John's house for a Christmas party. And we've done this for the last, you know, 10 years or something. This was the first year in, I think, decades and decades that John hasn't had his annual Christmas party. Mm. So it's surreal to me that, that some of the people I'm even, you know, uh, getting to experience this strange moment with are people I worshiped, you know, growing yeah. up. Yeah. Um, but it's Mink. Mink was the first to come. She was the first celebrity to come. She opened all of those doors. I'll, I'll forever be grateful to Mink Stoll. I'll forever be her number one fan. And what Mink says on the flip side, if you were to interview her, uh -huh. and I did not know this at the time, was that my sort of adoration of her was so um, unapologetically pure. Like when she came to Midnight Mass, I rolled out the red carpet. I mean, not, <laughs> not in a little way. Like I, you know, had an artist build a giant banner that said, Hail Mink, you know, <laughs> uh, above the, above the thing, because it was Midnight Mass. I had someone who de dealt with robotics, create a robotic pneumatic effigy of Peggy Gravel <laughs> stirring rabies with dry ice coming out of the, you know, the thing on the set, you know, I had you know, it was, you know, it, when I introduced her and I gave her that San Francisco introduction, um, San Francisco not only got on its feet and applauded with a standing ovation, they did not sit down. You know, <laughs> they did not sit down. Yeah. And I had drag queens, you know, bringing out flowers for her and this. And so it truly was, you know, not only was it my first idol worship show, which I went to emulate for years with Pam Greer and Elvira and Tara Satana and all these other people, but it was all pure. And what Mink says later is at that time, uh, she was struggling. You know, John's uh, movies um, had gotten to the point where Cecil B. Demented was about to come out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, her roles were getting smaller and smaller in the films. Serial Mom was amazing. She had a very big role in Serial yeah. Mom. And that was something we really, you know, showcased in our tribute. Um, and she, you know, whatever she was, you know, dealing with whatever she was dealing with and she needed this in that moment. Yeah. And it was the first time she'd ever been, uh, given a tribute that was her own, oh, you know, wow. it throughout history, 
she was always invited to these big important things, but it was to stand next to Divine, to stand next to John, to stand next to Edie, or, yeah. you know, um, but this was the first time that she, so, yeah. you know, who knew? I didn't know, you know, it was all, it was kismet. She needed that at that time and I needed her and um, we, you know, formed a friendship and then, you know, I, I'm in with the Dreamlanders. You are a Dreamlander. <laughs> you are a Dreamlander. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. I'm still. I'm still a. I'm still a, a fan from the outside. But but I get to be. Well, I mean, I'm telling you, when you get to go to that Christmas party oh every God. year, I am telling you, the people you meet. <laughs> you know, for using I've the word met. When. <laughs> yeah. When? Oh my God! It is. I mean, I've met. I met the singing asshole before he passed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And John introduced me and he said, do you recognize this person? And I said, no. And I was really embarrassed. You really put yeah. on the spot. When, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a hard question to ask. You know, and John you know, le leans over and whispers in my ear, it's the singing asshole, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. And I'm, I'm looking at this man. I'm a big fan of your work. And I've just met him and his wife, you know? <laughs> I mean, as a kid this growing up, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, dying yes. on the inside last year i got to meet uh lulu fishpaw the woman who plays lulu oh uh you know and you know and i've become friends with susan lowe who plays you know mole in desperate living and yeah. is uh you know part of chiclet and concetta with divine and female trouble and you know so it's this surreal thing to i do feel like i've ended up in oz like yeah. i was an outsider yeah. And now I, I get to play with, you know, I, I get to be in the Emerald City every so oh, often. God, that's so beautiful. <laughs> you know, just how you curated the uh, Haunted House experience. Mm -hmm. Can you do, can you please curate the Christmas at John Waters experience? Yes. Because I want to move in. <laughs> oh, I would love to do that, actually. I would like to see that. Oh, <laughs> I would love it. I actually, you know, think that because of COVID, you know, we're switching gears in a lot of ways and yeah. so I had been doing immersive haunted attractions yes. as, as a as a as an adult for the last few years uh not knowing a global pandemic was coming um <laughs> but also but knowing that immersive theater in many ways is what midnight mass has been you know it's yeah. this sort of you know very immer you know, like immersive experience so doing the haunted attractions and doing a, writing a play um I'm realizing exactly what you're saying is something I think we should be looking yeah. toward because going through an experience with masks on in groups of six to 10 people um, where actors can be socially distant and you're yeah. experiencing something in an immersive way is different than sitting in a room with 500 people. Damn. So, yeah. you know, my part, my business partner, David Flower and I, I'm like, David, we need to get on this. Yeah. We have to have, we have to start creating immersive drag shows. We could create the immersive John Waters experience where yes. you go through, you know, you're in the world of female trouble, but that gives way to the world of polyester or whatever, you know, how much fun would that be? In fact, I should talk to John. I've yes. never pit, I've never pitched anything to John because I've never anything. felt like, Never, because I know John has read my um, work and been a mentor for me and given me advice. And, you know, he was on the set of All About Evil and has Amazing. been an angel, but I've never pitched a project to him, you know, and said, we should do this. Uh, but an immersive John Waters world, I mean. <laughs> can you even? You can have no, a whole theme gonna, park, really. Yes, um, you can. Yeah. <laughs> Waters world. Yeah, exactly. Finally. <laughs> 
Wouldn't that be cost amazing? Us a It'd be incredible. Sleep no more can fuck off. This is what we want. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, whatever. I forget that company. They come from London. The yeah, Sleep No More yeah. production company. I need their money to yes. do this. So let's let's we'll put it all together because they've got the money. I've got the idea and the obsession. And, and the connections. Maybe, you know, con- convince John. Yes. Yeah. Right, this podcast is one big manifestation now. We need Punch Drunk to sponsor the jo- right. Watersland, Waterworld. And it's like, Waterworld. look, why not? I manifested well. COVID. I mean, we can, you know, <laughs> Time we can to dream. It. It's Peter's Christ's <laughs> yeah. great miracle. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so it was John Waters' aspiration to create the trashiest motion pictures in cinema history, and he set about making that a reality. His first shorts, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket, 1964, and Roman Candles, 1966, the latter featuring Divine as a smoking nun, shook the underground art scene and drew comparisons with Warhol. Uh, They set a tone for an oeuvre that was all their own, a beautiful trash aesthetic and spirit of true independence. Dreamland productions were made with very little budget and a script which was very rarely finished. We've mentioned Warhol a bit. Do you, how, I know that John Waters has been a little bit reticent about those early films being Warhol-esque because they have plots and stuff. But what what was your take on that, Peaches? I think... uh my impression is that he was very inspired by Andy Warhol yeah. and, and, and says as much. Mm-hmm. And even even uh, one of those films was triple projected, you know, yes. uh, which Warhol had done with Chelsea Girls. So I think in those early shorts, especially, I think that's where you see the Warhol influence the most. Yeah. Right. And um, I hadn't even seen some of them. But last was it last winter, the winter before I got to go to the John Waters um retrospect his our big show at the baltimore museum of art which was surreal i i went with mink oh so you God. can imagine walking yeah. through the john waters you know experience with a woman whose photo is part of a lot of it and then we get to watch they had the shorts there so you could watch the shorts being projected uh which you know i hadn't i hadn't seen because they weren't available absolutely um yeah, it was really surreal. And it was very strange with her, Mink because she was pointing out who every single person was. Because for her, they're just old home movies. So, yeah. oh, there's, oh, I dated that guy or, you know, this <laughs> and that. And it's like, this is so surreal, right? But those movies specifically, I think very much were inspired by Andy Warhol mm. and The Factory. Yeah. And that is where we'll leave it uh, for part one. And we'll get back in in part two into a deep dive, literally, figuratively, it is divine after all, into the amazing movies that uh, we touched upon in part one. Um, my darling, so um, we we do a little bit at the end of the show, like a plugs and hugs. Have you got, what what mm-hmm. can you plug, my love? Where can people find you if they don't? Well, <laughs> uh, right now, the easiest way to find me is just on all the social media uh-huh. platforms. Luckily, uh, I've been verified, so... You can find me easily with uh, the blue check on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, and yeah, and I, and I have a new um, merch company I've partnered with. And so you can find uh, my clothes, clothing and stuff at baymerch.com. They work with Bay Area artists. Amazing. So it's baymerch.com. Incredible, right? Going to buy an entire outfit. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Decorate the new house. Thank you so much, Peaches. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Diva Energy. If you did, you want to reach out and have a chat, share your BDE stories with us, maybe even your own divine-related stories, just tell us which diva means the most to you. You can tweet us at Diva Energy or email us at bigdivaenergypod at gmail.com.
dotcom. This podcast is a Dark Mutters production. If you thought we were the most beautiful women in the world, almost, then don't forget to like and subscribe. Alternatively, if you thought this was made with very little budget and a script which was rarely finished, get, get in, in the, the sea! sea. Bye! Bye! Bye-bye. Bye-bye.